Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning, experts warn we're not ready for a massive surge in long COVID cases. There's going to be a tsunami of people, even, you know, in the early phase of, of recovery, experiencing these symptoms. And then he became a prominent Muslim community leader in the aftermath of the Christchurch attacks. But we're here because you have something else to talk about today, something else people perhaps don't know about you. It's the first time I'm hearing it from somebody in the media. We will reveal all very shortly. But we start with COVID-19. A month into the Omicron outbreak, New Zealand is still recording tens of thousands of cases a day. But public health measures are getting looser. The borders are reopening. The merits of QR code scanning are being questioned. But as tempting as it might be to think we might just be squinting at the faintest light at the end of the tunnel, Experts are concerned New Zealand isn't preparing sufficiently for a looming healthcare crisis. Long COVID. 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 It's a loose term with a loose definition and loose data on how many people it actually impacts. But according to the Ministry of Health, it's real and it's a serious problem. Low energy and fatigue, shortness of breath and cough, headaches low mood and difficulty concentrating or cognitive impairment. Now some people might say, hey aha, those symptoms don't sound serious, but there is evidence to suggest long COVID causes brain shrinkage. The symptoms can be chronic and debilitating. In the UK, estimates show that 10% of people who catch COVID-19 still have symptoms three months after their diagnosis. But Chris Hipkins told me those figures are only so useful. We don't know what, uh, what the high, high rates of vaccination that we currently have in New Zealand are going to do in terms of things like long COVID. Other countries that have really suffered from this, in many cases it's been people who haven't previously had the opportunity to be vaccinated. So we're, we're in a kind of a unique position uh, when it comes to things like long COVID. But let's just take a conservative view. We have just under half a million confirmed COVID-19 cases in New Zealand, although that's likely to be much smaller than the real number. So if vaccinations and the milder Omicron variant mean just 1% of COVID-19 sufferers here get long COVID, we are already looking at 5,000 long COVID cases nationwide. 5,000 cases, 5,000. There's every chance the number will be much higher. But that's 5,000 people who may not be able to work, who likely won't have sick leave to cover their absence, but also won't be covered by ACC. This week, the Ministry of Health announced it's developing a rehabilitation guide to help doctors treat patients with long COVID. But experts say it's not enough, and we aren't properly grappling with the scale and severity of the problem. Well, we don't have any decent way of tracking how many people have got long COVID yet, so it's really difficult to tell. We know how many people have had uh, COVID in the past and you know, now have long COVID, and we're just going to start to see what that scale is going to look like moving forward. Do we know what difference Omicron and New Zealand's relatively high vaccination rates will make to our long COVID numbers compared to other countries? I think it's going to help, absolutely. We know that vaccination protected against uh, long COVID from Delta, but it was a bit of a game changer with Omicron because Omicron slightly evades the immune system. That's why more people are going to get symptoms and do present with symptoms. So when people are symptomatic from that infection, that tells us that there's probably that added layer of long COVID uh, probability. We just have no idea what percent that's going to be. What has happened to New Zealanders who tested positive for the virus early in the pandemic and since have had long COVID symptoms? The feedback hasn't been great. So essentially we've been uh, hearing a lot of people what we call medical gaslighting, that you know they explain their symptoms. They do all the medical tests. You know, it's very, very important with any sort of symptoms that they get a full medical check. They check to see if there's any heart problems, lung problems and any other thing going on. And then everything comes back normal. So thereafter, many people hear, well, I'm sorry, all your tests are normal, and send them away with no assistance. And what we know as researchers that are digging deeper and doing, you know, looking into what could be happening, we know there's absolutely biological causes going on. It's just that these tests aren't available clinically. You've been trying to secure funding to research this properly. Why haven't you got the funding? And what would that research potentially tell us? 
Well, yeah, absolutely. So we launched a crowdfunding uh, campaign at the end of last year because there's massive urgency. So essentially I've uh, recruited well over, I think we're up to about 90 people now where their blood has been stored. It's in the lab ready to go. And what we were going to be doing there is tracking their immunity. But more critically now is actually understanding the causes of long COVID. So we want to look at proteins in the blood and we want to look at their immune cells to try and understand you know how we can treat this and so we absolutely are uh, working on this and we know that there are probably proteins that we can spot um, so that we can then feed through clinically uh, to get treatment pathways happening it's not just all about symptom management mm. we know that if we put the resources into understanding the mechanisms of this condition that we can you know get treatments underway to reverse this condition you saw the ministry of health address the long COVID issue earlier this week they're developing a framework and guidelines to help doctors uh, offer some sort of rehabilitation process or treatment to patients. What have you made of the Ministry's response? So those pathways are important, the rehabilitative uh, pathways to manage symptoms, but it's not going far enough. What, what I would hope to see is that alongside the rehabilitative pathways, is that there's sort of uh, innovation going on and talking with us researchers, connecting with all those people that are sort of at, at the bleeding edge, if you like, of understanding the research so that we can act really quickly. So once we know what's happening biologically, that those treatment pathways can be integrated. It is not just about rehabilitation. We know that these, you know, that there is an opportunity to treat people, but we need the opportunity to do the research so that we can help uh, get people back on their feet, so to speak. I guess what we really want to see happen is that this education goes out in an equitable fashion so that all GPs and anyone who's seeing patients understands the spectrum of symptoms. Because these, you know, there's going to be a tsunami of people, even, you know, in the early phase of, of recovery, experiencing these symptoms. And it's not that common, you know, to, to have tachycardia, shortness of breath and all of these things after a viral infection. And, you know, as I say, you might get sent off to a cardiologist, but there's nothing wrong in the heart department. Even by conservative estimates, New Zealand is likely facing potentially thousands of long COVID diagnoses. Is there a risk we will be caught flat-footed? There's a risk if we don't act soon um, of, of people being left with no support, yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it's it's no secret that our health system is, is stretched. I mean, we're in the middle of, you know, the infectious part, right? So, you know, all, all of our healthcare pathways are going to be strained. So, you know, people talk about long COVID as a multi-system disorder. You know, people talk about a laundry list of, of specialists that they end up with. So that's where it becomes really difficult is because it is a whole body uh, effect. So, yeah, I think we could be in, in trouble if, if we don't sort of uh, act fast to have some form of national network where people can uh, find out where to go, where to seek help. And, and who knows how long those, uh, you know, waiting lists and things like that may be. So it's a really, you know, um, an equitable approach to, you know, if you have these symptoms, how quickly can you be seen to and will your doctor know about them has been the strongest feedback, I would say, because we absolutely have heard people, especially sort of recently, going to their doctor and getting great treatment. But that needs to be for everyone. And that's what we're not hearing. That is cellular immunologist Dr Anna Brooks from Auckland University. She's part of a support group for Kiwis with long COVID and is trying to secure funding to research the cause. For those on the front line of supporting people with disabilities, long COVID presents yet another pressure on an already strained system. Tanya Kingi is the chief executive of Te Rōpū Waiora, an organisation that ensures whānau have access to disability services. Kia ora, Tanya, thanks for being with us. What do you think about preparation for long COVID? Kia ora, Jack. Um, in a nutshell, we're, we're definitely not prepared. We're, we're not even coping with our existing population of whānau haua or people with disabilities, um, let alone a, a mass disability event as it's been described through the media and in the studies. So um, I think we should be concerned about what, what may be happening. What is a mass disability event and why do you think potentially thousands of cases of long COVID might 
be considered a mass disability event. From the from the symptoms and the um, the impact that long COVID has on people, um, regardless of it being you know, possibly one percent, uh, that's the description of people with impairments. So the reliance on the disability sector to be able to uh, cater for um, even a small increase of this population is is putting us in a situation where we're, we're in trouble, I think, as a country if we haven't made the preparations. And, and I'd say it again, we haven't made the preparations. Um, we're not even coping with our existing population. And you might be watching the Waitangi Tribunal uh, hearings that are going on at the moment. It was really clear that there are particular populations that are marginalised even within the disability community that aren't getting access. So I guess my concern is, is the fact that if we're preparing for um, uh, an increase in the population of people with disabilities, then those marginalised groups certainly need to be considered first and foremost. Talk to us a little bit more about that if you can, Tanya, because Māori and Pacifica uh, communities have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 for the, the full extent of this pandemic. What do you think the impact of long COVID will be on those communities? Um, yeah, I don't want to be doom and gloom, but I, I certainly think that we will, we will be in a worse position there, than we are in at the moment. And we're already in a pretty bad situation. And the evidence that's been presented by whānau over the last week, and even in December, when we had a Waitangi Tribunal uh, hearing over COVID itself, um, we were really alarmed that the population of people with disabilities was it was just simply unknown in terms of how many people had been vaccinated. Mm. So the, the attempts by the government to lift the border restrictions in December was based on the fact that 90% of people would be vaccinated. Mm. Uh, but we found in the Waitangi Tribunal um, hearings that out of the 1.1 million people with disabilities, only 40,000 had been identified in terms of a vaccination status. Mm. So you have this massive gap of people that they don't even know whether or not they've been vaccinated, and those should be ringing massive alarm bells throughout the country, and in particular for Māori and Pacific communities. So if we get thousands or potentially tens of thousands of long COVID cases, and those cases are often difficult to diagnose. What will that look like on the ground? Um, what we have at the moment is a, an unknown population that is not uh, accessing services for a number of reasons. Um, what we probably end up with is something similar, an unknown population. I mean, we know now that the vaccination numbers are out of kilter completely. We, we don't know how many people have been vaccinated. We don't know how many people are, are in fact um, um, infected. Mm. And if you put all of those, those issues together, we, we're in sort of unknown land. So how do you plan for things like that. I mean, our, our issue with um, COVID in the beginning, say, in the beginning of Omicron, was that we had no strategy here in counties Monaco for whānau hua, for, for Māori with disabilities mm. around COVID. We didn't have that strategy because the statistics hadn't been counted. Um, we, they hadn't been counted because the system didn't allow it. Mm. So there was no strategy. We're in the same situation now. We will be in the same situation when the numbers start to show. And if, if that's the case, then um, we've got some really, uh, well, financial issues to mm. consider. We've got to look at the system. And I know there's a lot of work being done around the disability sector and the changes, the health sector and the changes, but those changes take a long time. To be um, to to operate and, and get grounded, this is happening way too fast for us. And um, what it feels like is organisations like ours, and, and we are an organisation that's founded and governed by Farno Hoa. Mm. Um, but organisations like ours will be expected to pick up the slack 
we're barely coping now. Uh, I've never seen this sort of response where people in the community um, are working so hard mm. because there are gaps in the way in which the system resources and invests in, in services across the board, especially in the disability sector. And some will say this is an obvious gap. If a person is suffering from long COVID, experiencing symptoms for three months or longer after their initial um, positive test for COVID-19, there's every likelihood that they might use all of their sick leave if they even have sick leave available to them. There's every likelihood they won't have any support through ACC or anything like that. So how should we be supporting people who are suffering from long COVID? Uh, Anna, I think, um, before me was right that the research has to be done. Um, but not just uh, research that's undertaken in uh, university environments, but community-based research. The people who are in the front line uh, know better than anyone else what's happening out in the community. Uh, we've got to be prepared across all sectors. I mean, we've, we're very insular in the disability sector. Um, but we know by experience that every sector will be impacted upon mm. uh, with this long COVID uh, situation. So more attempts need to be made to bring others to the table, like the business community. I mean, very rarely do we talk to the business community in the disability sector. Um, we need to. We mm. certainly need to, as we do with health, housing, employment, education. Um, and if the government's going to do anything, then this whole area of siloed, fragmented government approaches to an issue needs to be dealt with and kicked to the curb. And we've, this isn't something that's just come out of COVID. This mm. is a struggle that we've had for years, mm. trying to get government departments to open up their, their borders of their own fragmentation and sort out how they could sit at the table and collectively work towards finding solutions. This may be too late, though. We hope not. Tēnā koe, Tanya. Thank you very much for your time. That is Tanya Kingi, the CEO of Te Ropu Wairora. Coming up on Q&A, he's an engineer, a community leader, a recipient of leadership awards, but for the first time, this young man will reveal his extraordinary chequered past. We welcome back to Q&A. The government responded to the surge in the price of petrol with a three-month cut to fuel excise taxes and by making public transport half price. But transport currently makes up a huge share of New Zealand's carbon emissions. And when there is such political sensitivity to the price of petrol going up, what does that mean for New Zealand's climate change commitments? Rosie Collins is an economist at Sense Partners who specialises in the economics of climate change and she joins us from Pōneke from Wellington this morning. Kia ora, Rosie. Did the government do the right thing? Morning. Um, they took a very immediate sort of response to an immediate problem, uh, but cutting fuel taxes isn't a very targeted way to reduce the cost of living. So I think they did what they needed to do in terms of showing that they care and showing that they needed to act. Um, but they didn't do it in the way that most economists would choose to. What would have been a more targeted approach? Uh, so we've got tools in our toolbox that we already use around um, tax credits, uh, income tax, boosting benefits and things like that. So they could have looked to boost, say, the winter energy payment um, in the future or um, sort of announce uh, changes to benefits and things like that. We know that, that the cost of uh, petrol... Um, impacts parties politically and that, and that voters are incredibly sensitive mm -hmm. to the price of petrol. But as mm -hmm. well as a cost of living crisis, New Zealand faces a climate crisis. The world faces a climate crisis. Was this a missed opportunity to change consumers' behaviour when it comes to using fossil fuels? I think the role of price and transport um, decarbonisation is relatively limited. So we know that people don't actually respond that much when fuel prices are high, at least wealthier groups don't, they continue to drive. Uh, so in those situations we need to have other tools in the toolbox, sort of increasing public transport, increasing cycleways, removing parking to make parking a hassle uh, and things like that. So I don't think it's a missed opportunity for climate change and in fact the forecast oil prices that the Climate Change Commission are using are relatively um, flat and in fact lower than what they are 
uh, now, so we wouldn't see these sorts of prices until 2030 on their modelling. So we're not in any ways behind um, on our decarbonisation objectives by cutting this fuel tax, uh, but we do need to see other policies to actually get the systems change that we need. That's really interesting. So t talk to us just a little bit more about that. Despite the sensitivity around mm. the price of petrol, higher fuel costs don't necessarily mean people use much less of it. So there's a split experience across groups. So low-income groups tend to treat transport like a lu uh, sorry, luxury goods. So they're happy to um, cut down on it and travel less uh, when prices go up. But wealthier groups don't tend to respond to the price. They just wear the cost. And so their behaviour is harder to change with the price lever. And for low-income groups, when the prices go high, you do need to look at things to improve equity so that those groups can still get around when prices are uh, increasing. Why is and even within that group, there's a split of experience between... Oh, sorry. No, no, please, continue. Uh, there's a split in experience between uh, those who don't consume much transport at all and those that have to drive for work. So it's really the ones that have to drive for work because they, they live far out or their work is out of town or on the fringes in industrial areas, say, uh, that will wear the cost of higher fuel costs sort of most acutely. Why is there such sensitivity to the price of petrol? I think it's one of the only goods that we all buy together in similar quantities. Uh, and it's quite a visible cost, so we can all talk about it and sort of understand what a price of a litre of petrol um, means and how much it roughly uh, costs to fill up a car. With things like housing, even though they consume a lot more of our budget, uh, sort of uh, transport might be less than 10% of a budget, whereas housing can be 30 to 40% for some groups of, of their spending in a week. Um, but the cost of housing is really hidden, so we don't see the overcrowding, we don't see the people who have to move towns, people that have to live far out or live in really crappy homes. Um, those become more like horror stories, whereas I think fuel prices are an objective price on a sign. And if we had a sign, say, for how many families lived on the, or are waiting on the social housing register, perhaps that would be more visible as a cost. But really it's about fuel being a really visible and sort of grudge purchase that we just have to consume. Will halving the cost of public transport make people more likely to use it? Uh, yeah, so in general, yeah, when the price goes down, people will um, use it more and it will help with um, people, again, in that low-income group that are really struggling who have good access to transport. Uh, there's been sort of cases in Estonia where they've made public transport free altogether uh, and public transport use increased about 15%. But the caveat there is that they already had quite good public transport systems. Uh, there are some systems, say I think in Wellington, that are pretty good, that if you made them cheaper, it would increase uptake a lot more say then I'm from Tauranga and the bus system there is just um, painful to use and mm. so even if you make it free I think that uptake would be relatively limited so there's a balance there between the price of something but also the convenience and the ease of being able to use it and again for that sort of group who are happy driving uh, it's really about making driving a hassle and mm. at the same time driving that wedge and price um, bigger so that you get the shift on both sides. So you're saying fuel would have to be more expensive for consumers filling up their cars, but at the same time public transport would have to be really cheap to make it attractive. What would be the impact on our emissions? Um, oh, sorry, have I got that wrong? Uh, well, I think not just fuel being more expensive, but actually parking being a hassle and it being annoying to drive into town and to do those trips that you might otherwise take a bus for if you're, say, in a, in a suburb and you can just hop on a bus into town, if it's going to take you half an hour to find a park, that's more of a painful nuisance of a cost than actually the cost of fuel being 20 cents more. So it's a lot of psychological factors at play with transport, not mm. just the, the cost of fuel. And that's why price levers themselves alone won't be enough. It's got to be a range of factors. What would be the impact on our emissions if all public transport was free? I mean, it would depend again on how much the network was used. So I think the, the risk with making public transport free is that perhaps people don't value it and it could become a political barrier to actually extending mm. the networks and frequency. So there's a real um, psychological um, uh, question to get around with whether or not public transport should be free. Certainly if we discount it, uptake will increase for those lower income groups. Uh, the emissions effect, if we can decrease driving, is um, mm. significant and is one of our main climate policy goals for New Zealand. So uh, roughly yeah, 30% of our emissions that we 
actually bare if you sort of exclude the agriculture that we export as, as transport. Uh, so focusing on, on getting rid of car dependency is a really important aspect of that and improving public transport is one lever that we need to do. But we also need cycleways and to um, improve walkability to actually have affordable housing in the cities in the first place. It's something that's often missed is that people have to actually be able to live close to an urban centre and afford mm. to live there. Um, so there's a range of other factors going on as well. There was a carbon credit auction earlier this week where the price cap was hit once again and we used reserve credits. Can you explain what it actually means under the ETS when we hit the carbon price cap? Sure, it's essentially a safety valve uh, and the idea is that we don't want prices to be too volatile too quickly. Uh, so there's a guardrail on both sides so the price doesn't get too low and the price doesn't get too high. The cap indicates that prices are on the up. Uh, which has been signalled by the Climate Change Commission um, is that they will in the next 10 years continue to rise. Uh, $70 cap is roughly half of what the EU ETS price is at the moment, so it's not um, anything to be afraid of that we're hitting the cap. It sort of puts us in the middle of the pack in terms of carbon pricing. And it really is sort of the first time we're seeing the ETS actually work as it should, because for so long the prices have been so low uh, that you couldn't really see that behavioural effect that we're looking for in terms of um, incentives to reduce emissions. So, yeah, Interesting. Thank you very much for your time, Rosie. We really appreciate it. Tēnā That's Rosie no Collins from Thank Sense Partners. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can flick us an email, find us on Twitter, or seek us out on Facebook. Up next, we will reveal what maybe you didn't know about National's new finance spokesperson. You've shot through the ranks. Is there any kind of uncomfortable vibe in the caucus because of that? Out of the blue, National's finance spokesperson Simon Bridges resigned suddenly this week and that meant yet another promotion for List MP Nicola Willis, who in just four years has risen to number two in the party. Reporter Fenna Owen went to her parliamentary office to get to know her a little better. So what are you going to show us, Nicola? Well, on this wall are all of the pictures of former press gallery journalists. Yeah. And I walked past it on my way into work most days. And here in the front row is my mum. She's wearing a beautiful maternity uh, dress, uh, and in her stomach is me. So you're sort of in that picture, in utero. Yeah, I sort of am, yeah. A long association with Parliament. Yeah, that's right. So this is your office. Welcome to my office. Is this your, is this the, your notice board? <laughs> National Caucus Memos. Yeah, this is, look, I've got a bit of a fan club, uh, and they're my four children, uh, and they often make me beautiful things that make my heart sing. I've got an amazing husband who's always had the view that looking after children and caregiving is a role that we should share, um, and he's really stepped up into that. And who I'm, does the finances in your house, by the way? Oh, we're a team effort, yeah. I'm really conscious, I mean, my salary's published. People know that I'm not doing it nearly as tough uh, as many, many New Zealanders. Um, but if I'm noticing when it's more at the supermarket, I know that people all over the country are. If you were Finance Minister, Nicola, how would you deal with that? How would you mm. uh, get the, a kilo of cheese reduced? Well, the key thing is making sure that people have more money in their back pocket so that they can make those choices for themselves. So you'd raise the minimum wage? Well, the thing that I've always said is, yes, you raise the minimum wage. National did that every year in office. So I'll go back to my question. How would you get the, pr the a price of a kilo of cheese drop? Well, right now what I would do is I would, in this budget, give a package of tax reductions so that a family with two average wage earners would have $1,700 more in their bank account that would let them buy that block of cheese. This is my um, family, uh, which is where my heart really is. This is us all in our Christmas pyjamas. It's a very silly and embarrassing tradition uh, that we have every Christmas. You're kidding me, and, you, ha and you have a Christmas photograph. We do. It's this ritual of we all get the pyjamas, we open them on Christmas Eve, we sit together, we get a family photo. So, crazy. Yeah. This is you in your 20s. Mm. With yeah. John Key. With John Key. Yeah. Um, and this photo was in opposition 
uh, when uh, I was his senior advisor, which was a funny title for someone in her 20s. You often read that, you know, John Key has sort of anointed your career trajectory. Oh, well, I don't think that um, he would say that he has that power um, to anoint someone, uh, but what he has been is someone who's been a real mentor to me. Remind us how long you've been in Parliament, is it just for, just under four years? Yes, just right, under I was four elected years. in uh, April 2018. So you, you've shot through the ranks, is there any kind of uncomfortable vibe in the caucus because of that that you have to manage? No, no we're all human. Yeah, no, look I've been um, yeah, just so grateful this week with the way my caucus colleagues have just about all of them individually come to me and said look I'm just so glad to see you in the role and I know you'll represent us well. We're unintentionally flying the flag for the Greens today. Uh, <laughs> I always say, you know, we're politicians, not mascots. We don't have to just wear party colours. But, you, but you've got quite a few blue trouser suits, haven't you? Actually, you've got a lot of trouser suits. I will bet you that Grant Robertson has more blue trouser suits than I do. I reject uh, the premise of the members' questions. But yeah, I love wearing a trouser suit and um, I've got them in lots of different colours. I've got a lot of people around me that can be mentors, you know. This week I've been in touch with John Key and Bill English and Stephen Joyce uh, and each of them were incredibly successful in government and I know uh, will teach me a lot about what they think needs to happen and doesn't need to happen and I'll bring my own fresh lens to it. In terms of finance ministers, mm -hmm. Labour, National, who do you admire? Who do you think did a good job? I think Bill English was incredible and Bill was such a steady pair of hands. This is a Cookie Monster onesie, which every finance spokesperson needs, obviously, uh, in my case because I was doing uh, collecting for Wellington Free Ambulance. Oh, so that's what you wear when you oh, collect I, for Wellington Free Ambulance? Yeah, they have yeah. this onesie day thing. We yeah. haven't had it for a while because of COVID, but yeah. yeah. Ah, a gift from John Key. Is that Shampers? It is, yeah. yeah it's um, a, a gift he gave me when we won in 2008, so it's a special memento. So when are you going to crack that open? Oh, well, next year when we win. Nicola Willis with Fina Owen. After the break, an interview you've just got to see. Whatever you think Bari Shah is here to discuss, chances are you're wrong. We'll enlighten you after the break. Kia ora iti, we welcome back. After the March 15th attacks, a young Afghan New Zealander and engineering student found himself in a prominent leadership position as his community worked to process what happened. Three years on, Bari Shah is now a member of Kapuia, the panel which advises the government on its response to the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the attacks. But Bari Shah also has a secret, a secret past, a past he is publicly acknowledging for the first time. The March 15th attacks changed New Zealand and shocked the world. These past few days have been extremely difficult. As the head of the Canterbury University Muslim Students Association, Bariz Shah was thrust into a very public position. You this evening um, had to read out the names of the 50 victims of the attack. What was going through your head and your heart at that moment? that they're in a better place. After assisting with the burials, Baris continued to advocate for tougher hate speech laws and changes he believed would make life safer for minority communities. Three years on, he's still at it. Before I begin, I'd just like to acknowledge my creator for all the blessings that I'm aware of and the blessings that go unnoticed. March 15, for me personally, was an experience that has shaped my life now. Like, who I was prior to March 15 and who I am now is completely different. I don't take life for granted whatsoever. I appreciate every single blessing that I have in my life now. Uh, some people who were in my circle um, are no longer with us. Um, they're in a better place, but, you know, when you're involved in, in a tragedy like that, two things that can happen to you. It either crushes you or it actually uh, fuels your fire. 
And for me, I'm fortunate enough that it has, it has fueled my fire. You have been involved in leadership positions over the last few years, and one of those is as a member of Kapuya, which is the group that assesses the government's response to the Royal Commission. How do you think our government has done responding to March 15th? Honestly, initially I was very uh, skeptical of the whole Kapuya group, but now that we've had a, almost half a year gone by and I've seen the commitment that the group members themselves uh, have shown, and also the government as well. Minister Little has shown very uh, much that you know, he's willing to engage in a, in a very transparent and honest manner. Um, my views have changed. I feel positive that we can, um, you know, commit to the 44 recommendations and meet it to however it was proposed. A lot has happened in the three years since. You personally have had a child. Uh, you've received awards for your work in the community. You have graduated with your engineering qualifications and got your first job as an engineer. But we're here because you have something else to talk about today, something else people perhaps don't know about you. You are a convicted criminal. You, you spent time in prison. This is the first time I'm hearing it from somebody in the media. Yeah, I did. At the age of 18, I went to Mount Eden Prison and then to Spring Hill Corrections Facility. I served almost a year. Um, and during that period in prison, I felt like I reconnected with my true self. Looking in hindsight, I'm actually glad I went to prison. Yeah. I think it would be helpful to get a, a better sense of you, a younger man, and some of the troubles you had, so we can see the full path that you've followed. So, so tell me about coming to New Zealand. You were born in Afghanistan. You spent a few years in Pakistan before coming to New Zealand. What was New Zealand like? in 2001? Touching down in Auckland Airport, it was raining. <laughs> uh, Auckland weather got to us for a month. You know, we felt very depressed coming into a new environment. Because this was a period when the war in Afghanistan was in the news most nights. And I imagine for you, an Afghan boy in New Zealand, that would have made for an unusual experience. Yeah, 100%. I remember coming home and um, seeing my mother watching the Twin Towers burning down. And she was crying at the time, and I've said this before, I didn't really understand why she was crying. But as I went through my schooling years, I began to understand, especially for my sisters who wear the headscarf, and for them, uh, life wasn't as easy. Why, why was she crying? Because she knew what life was going to be like for us in New Zealand living as a, as a Muslim. You know, all my sisters wear the, their headscarves, so they're very visible. Um, you know, getting racist comments, stuff like that, just became the norm. Did that affect you as a kid? I didn't really understand racism. They would tell me things like, oh, Sam Bin Laden, and so on, but I didn't really understand racism. Up until year nine or year 10, when one of the guys was, for a whole year, he was just giving me racist comments, and I just had enough. Midway through year 10, I just had enough and lashed out, give the guy a beating. Um, thought I did the right thing, because I was standing up for myself, but uh, the school obviously had me in their back, bad books after that. And that was a turning point of sorts? It was. I felt like society was against me. What I was seeing on TV was being reinforced by what I was experiencing at school. Um, and so I just lashed out to any uh, authority, basically, because I felt like it was my way of fighting back against what was happening in Afghanistan, where innocent women and children were getting droned. That being said, I suppose there will be some people who say, or who question if the, the war in Afghanistan is, is like a convenient excuse in a way. 
they'll say, Burroughs, there were lots of Afghan New Zealanders who didn't have the issues that you had, who didn't commit crimes, who didn't get in fights at school. What do you say to that? I totally understand that. As a young person, you're very impressionable, right? Uh, you don't really know who you are. You don't know what you stand for, what your values are. And so you're easily affected. So when I was watching stuff on TV, I was being affected by it when I shouldn't have been. Um, yes, that's my people. They're going through a tough time, but I should have looked at it in the sense that I can actually make myself, make something of myself here and go back and help rather than going down a destructive path and taking the victim route. I, I stopped seeing myself as a victim when I went to prison. I had enough of it. So you were expelled from school? Three times. Three times? Yeah. So you get expelled from school. You're a young man, you work some odd jobs, and you start hanging out with the wrong crowd. But then you return to Afghanistan. Yes. And what was that like? In 2012, I'll never forget. Went for my sister's wedding, and I ended up staying for four to five months there. Every day I would interact with people on the street, you know, taxi drivers, um, young kids who would go to school in the morning at 8 o'clock, finish at 12, and then start selling. They will do things like pick up bottles, uh, jump into canals and freezing cold water uh, for, for recycling and so on. And speaking with these young people, I realized how much of a victim I was seeing myself, you know? These young people weren't complaining about life when they should have been. You know, they would doubt, they've been dealt cards that most of us will never see. But they weren't complaining. You know, they were getting on with life. And when I met young people like that, I, I really uh, felt ashamed with the way I was carrying myself. So I came back to New Zealand with a different perspective, yet I was still involved with the same kind of group. Um, and so that's how I couldn't get away and ended up in prison. Court files document the detail of the crime. Bari Shah was with a group of teenagers who deceived and robbed a 16-year-old boy. In this instance, Burry's wasn't violent, but the victim was hit once by one of the other teenagers. He was threatened and outnumbered. And although the court noted his genuine remorse, 18-year-old Bari Shah was convicted of aggravated robbery and perverting the course of justice. What was it like when you were arrested? I'll tell you the day when we left the courtroom, actually, I waved goodbye to my brother after being sentenced. Uh, and when you go into the back of the courtroom, there's this process you have to go through and then you jump in a paddy wagon, not, pa not a paddy wagon, in those vehicles that take you, it's like an arm armored vehicle. You have a small little window. Actually, it's Mount Eden, um, the, the court is very close to where we are right now. And you get out and you start driving down the road towards Mount Eden Prison, and you see everybody else in the morning. You know, people are going by, one person's got their coffee, everyone's going about, about their life, and you're sitting in this little cubicle looking outside, but nobody can see you. It felt good. It felt good? It felt good. It felt good to get away from society, have some time to myself. It felt good. Yeah, it's very unconventional what I'm saying, but to get away from that, the habits that I have and the people that I was involved with, it, it was a relief for me. That's no. not what you were expecting, right, no, Jack? No. <laughs> you were expecting I mean, me to take I thought you were going to say, oh, you know, I realized that, you know, that my life had kind of was off the rails and I didn't know if I could ever repair it. But here I, you are I already saying, knew my life was off the rails. I knew it all along. I knew it after, uh, actually before I had the fight at school. I knew it. I knew that I hadn't, uh, I hadn't developed myself where I could be comfortable with who I, with who I was at here in New Zealand, um, where I could walk down the street, be considered a non-New Zealander, and be okay with it. You know, I struggle with this living in New Zealand. I really struggle with the sense of belonging. Now I don't. I walk down the street, I feel like Auckland City's mine. Like, I, I, I really don't care, you know? But I didn't have that when I was young, so, yeah. After the break, how did Bari Shah go from being an inmate at Spring Hill Prison 
to a community leader and a qualified engineer and the one thing he thinks would help other inmates turn their lives around. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. When we left you, Barry Shah had just been sentenced and I asked him about his time in prison. For me, I was fortunate enough to um, be in a unit with people who uh, had respect for one another. There was obviously times where you, initially, where you get tested and they see what you're about, if you, um, you know, stand for yourself or, or not. Once you pass that test, everybody in the unit appreciates you and it's like a big family. And what were you focused on when you were in prison? Working out. <laughs> there was a lot of that, a lot of push-ups, pull-ups and uh, squats. But what about this? Yeah, of course. Reading. Uh, got my family to send me books. I, I began to write down. More than reading, actually, it was me writing down in my journal and kind of speaking to myself. But when you were in prison, you made a conscious decision somewhere to use that time to try and change your life. Yeah. I stopped playing a victim. Yeah. I stopped playing a victim in Afghanistan when I interacted with those young people. When I came to prison, it allowed me to kind of use that mindset. You know, it took me away from my bad habits, like I said, and it allowed me to um, develop myself into who I wanted to be. Kind of like the hyperbolic time chamber that Vegeta goes to in Dragon Ball Z. I felt like that. Coming out, I was 10 kilos, um, I'd say muscle. <laughs> I've kind of lost it all now. Coming back to society, you get a bit lazy. But coming out was so perfectly in line because I was able to jump into my second semester that I had missed out because I went to prison, um, complete my foundation course at AUT and get granted a placement at uh, University of Canterbury. And it coincided with Ramadan. Exactly. It was just at the start of Ramadan, so I was able to continue with that discipline that I had developed in prison. Everything was perfect, everything is perfect. I'm just so blessed. For Bari Shah, it was as though someone had flicked the switch. He passed his course and was accepted to Canterbury University's engineering school. He became the head of the Muslim Students Association, and then life changed once again. In the period immediately after the attack, Baris threw himself into leadership roles. He spoke to media about changes that might help to prevent future attacks and helped on a retreat in Arthur's Pass to support the family members of those who died. After March 15, um, experiencing all these you know, difficulties, my wife and I were sitting in a dark room one day and we thought to ourselves, you know, because I come from an engineering background, I came up with this idea about, you know, energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So how can we create this? Uh, how can we use this negative energy that's been created here? Um, and so we came up with this idea of actually embracing the negative energy, transforming it, and using it as fuel for positive change. And when we came up with this sentence, it was like a spark went off. From that point on, everything just started to fall in place. Um, you know, we fundraised about $20,000. We went to Afghanistan for a period of three months and established 51 micro-businesses. It was an ambitious way to honour those who died in the Christchurch attack. In Afghanistan, Bariz and his wife helped establish 51 micro-businesses, one for every victim. The effort earned Bariz a Christchurch Civic Award. A documentary about the project, 51, is currently in development. In a sense, you are an exception to the rule. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you went to prison, and a lot of people would have said, given the nature of your convictions, that Burries is a no-hoper. That guy's going to be lucky if he ever has a job in his life. He'll be back in prison in five minutes. You have taken on leadership positions. You have qualified as an engineer. And I wondered what else can we do as a society to help more people follow your path? 
give them hope. Before going to prison, I had hope. I had hope that I could come out, you know, take that time in prison, use it to my advantage, come out and redeem myself. I really think prison is a good opportunity if, if somebody is to change. However, the problem lies in the fact that there's no hope for these young people when they go to prison. We need to give these young people hope. The reason why I'm speaking up about it is because prior to going to prison, I was actually told by one of the officers that it's okay. Even if you go to prison, you come out, you still have seven years. In those seven years, you prove yourself, and then your record can be cleared. I don't know if that officer was lying to me or uh, he was actually just giving me some hope, hope that I really needed at that time. That hope that the officer gave me lived with me while I was in prison. Unfortunately, what the officer told me is a lie. If you go to prison, even if it's for six months for a minor crime, you can never have your record cleared. I feel like that's setting people up for failure. That's why our re-offending uh, re rates are so high in New Zealand. We're setting people up for failure. So New Zealand has a, a clean slate law for people who have been sentenced to non-custodial sentences. So how should it work in New Zealand, do you think? The way I see it, we need to follow suit with some other uh, countries that have already implemented it and, and are seeing the benefits of it. And act something like, in 10 years, if you haven't committed a crime, and your crime wasn't, uh, let's say, for this, this, and this reason, that we as a society agree that we should never have it redacted, um, then we should allow people to have a second chance, you know? Easy way that the government can, can look into it, set up a, a diverse panel that meets once a year and judges applications that come forth and say, hey, I want to get my crime removed. I've done this much for this period of time to prove myself. Can I please get rid of this? I was only 18 at the time. I did not know who I was. Why am I being held for this for the rest of my life? I feel like as a progressive nation, we need to look into this. At the end of last year, Bari Shah completed his engineering qualification. He's got a job and he starts his master's next semester. To celebrate, Barry's drove down the motorway for a photograph at the place he briefly called home. Do you feel like you have made amends? Do you feel like you've gone full circle? Do you feel proud? Of myself? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And so, yeah, I can sit here and, and say I am proud of the person that I've become, the work that I've done for other people, not, not to get praised by it, but only because it makes me better. It makes me appreciate myself better. Um, so yeah, I am proud. It's Barry Shah. Just a reminder, we also publish Q&A every week as a podcast. It is in all the usual places. Just search for NZQ&A. For now, though, Kua Mutu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. And nā mihi ki a koutou inga karere. We really appreciate your feedback. Hey Tera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9 a.m. QA is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on air.